Luke 8, 26 through 39, and we'll look together at uh, Jesus' healing of a man with a demon, actually many demons, a legion of demons it appears. So Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, how much Jesus had done for him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Beloved, as you know, in the morning service, we have been going through a series in Leviticus and of late in a section on the clean and unclean laws. Now, if you don't understand the distinction between the unclean and the clean, then you won't really grasp the depth of what Jesus is doing here in our passage in Luke. The clean and unclean laws were ultimately teaching Israel about sin. Our sin makes us unclean. And this is why it was important for the priests to teach the people about the clean and unclean laws and to teach them, in addition, about the sacrificial system, which can make Israel clean again should they become unclean according to these laws. 
The priests were teaching the Israelites through these types and shadows about the forthcoming mission of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So think about our passage here in Luke. The man in our passage is possessed by demons, which Luke calls the demon that was speaking in the passage an unclean spirit. Verse 29. Now, while demon-possessed, this man dwelled where? Amongst the tombs, which were or, or was an unclean realm on account of the dead people buried in them. And to where did Jesus cast out the unclean spirits? but into the herd of swine, which were unclean animals. You see, these things don't stand out to you if you don't understand the clean and unclean laws in the Old Testament. But when you do, you see that Luke is showing the reader that Jesus is the Son of God who came to make His people clean. When sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience... We all fell with him and became unclean. Even more, we all came under the bondage and oppression of Satan, the great tempter. But the Son of God came on a mission to set his people free from Satan's captivity and to cleanse them from their sins. And this very thing was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, directly after man's fall into sin. God there proclaimed that another man would come who would not sin like Adam, but this man, through his obedience, would crush the head of Satan, the ancient serpent. And then the passage here in Luke Jesus shows that he had the power to do this and that his mission had begun. Now there's one more aspect to the mission of God that we could mention here, and that is the restoration of God's image in man. When Satan tempted our first parents to sin, it was an attack on man's image-likeness To God. Man glorifies God when he reflects God's image in this world. Tertullian, the great 2nd and 3rd century theologian, once said, The glory of God is a man fully alive. We know that sin brings death. In our sin, we are not fully alive and not the glory of God, not reflecting God's image in this world. Satan intended to destroy man through death. Because he hates God, he seeks to deform and disfigure the image of God in man. This, of course, is accomplished when through temptation he he seduces man into sin. Now, it's probably safe to say that the image of God in man 
is no more distorted and disfigured than through demon possession, such as we find in our passage. But when Christ came to cleanse his people from their sins and to redeem them from their bondage, it included a renewal and restoration in the image of God. Now that Jesus has come and accomplished his mission and risen to heaven, we want to recognize that the church's mission is aligned with the very mission of Christ, the very mission of God. And that is to spread the good news of the gospel so that by God's word and spirit, he can redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from their bondage and renew them in the image of God. This passage in Luke shows not only how distorted the image of God in man can become, but it also displays the power of Christ to rebuke satanic opposition and to renew the image of God in man. It shows Christ to be the one who had accomplished the mission that was foretold in Genesis 3.15. And it also shows how his mission is continued through his people, the church. In our passage this evening... The demoniac man had been reduced to living a wretched lifestyle, both physically and spiritually. He was living naked in a graveyard. Mark's gospel tells us a few more details about him. Mark writes that no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Can you imagine witnessing such a spectacle? Cyril of Alexandria described his spiritual condition this way. In great misery and nakedness, he wandered among the graves of the dead. He was in utter wretchedness, leading a disgraceful life, deprived of every blessing, destitute of all sobriety, and entirely deprived even of reason. End quote. You see, it was the possession of demons that had caused him to live this way. But I want you to recognize something that the text is trying to help you see. And that is that the condition of this man is really a great picture of what sin produces in our lives. It's a picture of what sin in general does to us. It leaves us feeling naked as it exposes our guilt. It alienates us from others and especially God. It can make us angry and aggressive like this demoniac man. Ultimately, it causes us to walk around in spiritual deadness. And that is what sin has brought about for all those who descend from Adam. Every one of us has the problem of sin. 
in the uncleanness of our sins, we are all dead in trespasses and sin. And spiritually speaking, we resemble the unclean demoniac madman in this passage. As Luke tells this account, he wants us to know that Jesus is the answer to our sin and to the devil. And so here's what happens between Jesus and the demoniac. Jesus asked the man his name, and the demon answered, saying, Legion, for he had many demons that had entered him. Now, if you're not familiar with the Greek word for legion, it was a Roman military term for an army of 6,000 soldiers. And we're not sure if there were actually 6,000 demons in this man. The demon spokesman could have used this term figuratively to speak of just a large number of demons. There were so many demons, it was like an army of demons. But if the number of pigs that they were cast into is any indication of how many demons had actually entered him, then we can know that he at least had 2,000 demons possessing him. For Mark tells us that there were around 2,000 pigs in the herd. This man was severely oppressed by demons. Demon possession is actually a rather peculiar thing. Uh, It's interesting that we hardly find any cases of demon possession in the Old Testament. And contrary to what many will tell you, we don't actually... recognize demon possession in the same way that it could be recognized in the time of Jesus, in the time of his appearance in the flesh, in the time of the incarnation, while he walked the earth. At least we don't recognize it in the same manner and with quite the accuracy, let's say, that Jesus and his apostles could recognize it. But during the time of Christ, there were many who were demon-possessed. And it would actually make sense for demonic activity to be heightened during the coming of Christ. Demons are, are simply fallen angels who serve Satan. They hate God, they hate his church, and they hate all that is good. Now, demonic activity may look different today in some cases, than it did in Christ's. But we cannot disregard the reality of demons. Christians many times will either overestimate or underestimate demonic activity in this world. Some disregard demons altogether, or at least functionally they live as if there's no such thing. They treat them as if they don't exist. Others, on the other hand, become so consumed with demons that they spend all of their focus on them. One of the non-denominational churches where I was a youth minister for a time had become so consumed with demonic activity that some of them felt like Christ's church today was not really continuing Christ's mission unless it was out looking for those who were demon-possessed and performing exorcisms on them. And it was really interesting 
how everything they began to do was the result of demonic activity. They fired the senior pastor because they claimed he had a demon. They claimed to cast out a demon from a lady who was a member of our church. The music team had to play certain songs because the demons were attacking them. I'm not sure how they knew which ones to play or or which ones worked, I guess, to keep the demons away. But that was the claim they made. Well, we don't want to get caught up on either of these extremes because that is precisely, I think, what, what, what Satan and the demons would prefer. To disregard them altogether perhaps makes their activity a little easier to be accomplished. On the other hand, when our focus is centered on them, we can lose track of the gospel and forget to make Jesus central in our lives, just as that church had done where I was a youth minister. They were so consumed with demons that I began to ask where Jesus was in the activity of the church. Well, demons are real, and they seek to destroy man. But before we begin to blame everything that happens, every bad thing that goes on on Satan and demons, we must remember, first and foremost, that our own sinful condition can lead us into gross living very similar to the demoniac in this passage. Sure, Satan can tempt us. But James tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so we must recognize, first of all, that our flesh and its desires tempt us already. And between Satan and all of his forces and our own sinful nature, man, in general, is very troubled. Like the demoniac here in our passage. But the good news is that 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. And this is shown to be true by our passage. It appears... That the demons knew this very thing as well. They begged Jesus not to make them depart to the abyss. They knew who Christ was. They knew he was the son of the most high God. And they knew that he was their executioner, so to speak. They knew what their final fate would be. They knew that they would eventually be thrown into hell. But they also knew that it was not yet the time for such things to occur. They knew that the time was not yet. It was not the appointed time for this to happen. And so they begged Jesus to let them enter a herd of swine rather than being cast into the abyss. They asked to be cast into this herd of swine. And so Jesus permits it. Do you notice the way Luke says that? By his permission. In other words, by a simple command, simply permitting 
he casts them out and puts them into the herd of swine. You see, Jesus, with just a simple command, has the power over the forces of darkness. There was no great struggle, but a simple command. He had come to destroy the works of the devil and all those who serve him. And when these demons encountered Jesus, they trembled with fear, begging Jesus not to torment them. And instantaneously, he cast the demons out of this man. And beloved, just as easily as he cast those demons out of this man, is as easily as he can remove the guilt of your sin. All of this is true because of Christ's obedience to the Father, obedience even unto death on a cross. Jesus, beloved, is the snake crusher. He did not fall prey to Satan's temptation in the wilderness the way that Adam had in the garden. And in this way, he lived a life of obedience to the Father. But that obedience took him all the way to the cross where he laid down his life for the sins of the many. By covering the sins of his people, he defeated the work of the devil. He crushed the devil's head. The death blow has been given. Satan found himself at that moment in a checkmate position, so to speak. He has been defeated. The victory has been won. The Lord has given him just a little more time. But on the last day, he will be thrown into the lake of fire, the abyss to which the demons had referred. And casting these demons into the swine that drowned in the sea was, beloved, a picture of what will happen at the return of Christ. When he will cast all of Satan's demons into the lake of fire, along with Satan himself and all who serve him. What a great portrait this is. Jesus already exhibiting it in his life, walking the earth, showing what he would do on the final day. And so what does all of this mean for you and me? Well, what did it mean for those that were there that day? Well, for most of them, unfortunately, the conclusion wasn't that great. In fact, it was rather poor. The text tells us that the swine herders went and told everything they saw to the people in the city and in all of the country or the countryside. And when all the people went out to see what had happened, they asked Jesus to leave. Why? Well, the text says that they were seized with great fear. Unfortunately, the Gadarenes uh, or for the Gadarenes, their fear was really not the right type of fear. They did not experience the type of fear that results in reverence and awe for the sovereign Lord. No, it appears that they feared the results that might come if Jesus were to stay. To lose 2,000 swine in a day is really a rather big economic loss for a pig farmer. 
It seems that they would rather have a madman roaming around in their tombs than to lose all of their swine money. They were not really interested in the spiritual gains that would occur with the presence of Jesus. They were concerned with the financial losses they might have if he stayed. It was the money that mattered to them. John Oxenham, an English novelist and poet, composed a work on this passage that I think states it pretty well. He writes, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? Maybe their fear went even beyond just their desire for money. Maybe it had something to do with more than just their economic loss. You see, the text notes that it was after they saw the man sitting at Jesus' feet, completely healed of the demons. It's seeing him at the feet of Jesus, healed, that they were seized with fear. Perhaps it was not just the economic change that they feared, but the change of their whole culture. Specifically with respect to their spirituality, their morality. They lived in the darkness and the light of the world had come before them. He would shed light on their evil deeds and expose all of their sins. They loved the darkness and therefore they rejected the light. They were more at home with men who walked around among the tombs than they were with the one who could give them the light of the gospel, which would give them life. This passage invites us to ask if we are like the Gadarenes, more comfortable with our deadness and sin than we are with the life that is found in Jesus Christ. Are we more comfortable with darkness than we are with walking in the light as he is in the light? Are we more comfortable with our money, our wealth, our earthly pleasures than we are with the forgiveness of sins and the removal of guilt? If so, then we are the Gadarenes in this story. Believe it or not, beloved It would be better for us to be like the demon-possessed man in this passage. Because in the end, he was being renewed in the image of God. Daryl Bach summarizes the dramatic renewal that this man experienced. He writes, In a complete reversal of the previously possessed man's demeanor, he is now clothed, whereas before he had been naked. He is now seated, whereas before he had been roaming. He is now associating with others as he sits at Jesus' feet, whereas before he sought solitude. He is now of sound mind, 
whereas before he had been crying out in a loud voice. He is now comfortable in the presence of Jesus, whereas before he wanted nothing to do with him. End quote. Satan and sin distorted and disfigured the image of God and man, but Jesus, see, Jesus was renewing this man in his image. And that is what he can do for us as well. Since the fall, the image of God in all humanity has been marred and disfigured. This too was the work of the devil, but Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He has come to claim a people for himself and to renew them in the likeness of God after true holiness, true righteousness, and true knowledge. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then he is doing this in you. He is renewing you in the image of God and he continues to do so as you read and study the word of God, as you partake of the sacraments, as you fellowship with one another, as the spirit inside you accompanying the word renews you in the image of God. Before you knew the Lord, your mind was more in tune with the demoniac man than it was with Christ. But now we have been given the mind of Christ. Before we had received Christ, we were naked and our guilt was exposed. But now we have been clothed with Christ. J.C. Ryle says it most beautifully. Never is a man in his right mind till he is converted, or in his right place, till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed, till he has put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that we have a new life to live, just as the once possessed man had a new life to live. Romans 13 speaks of this new life. Verses 12 through 14 says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Because we have been freed from the bondage of sin and Satan, beloved, this is how we ought to live. But this passage tells us one more thing about our new life in Christ. When Jesus accepted the Gadarenes' request to leave, the formerly demon-possessed man begged Jesus to go with him You see, when possessed, he had begged Jesus not to torture him. And now he begged Jesus not to leave him. But Jesus said no. He didn't allow him to accompany him. He told the man to return home and to declare how much God had done for him. You see, how amazing God's compassion and grace is. That even when he's rejected by people, even still he sends someone to proclaim the good news to them. 
The Gadarenes had demanded that Jesus leave. They did not want him in their city, in their country, and so he left. But though he left rejected, he did not leave them without a witness. I think this is likely here a sign of the inclusion of the Gentiles, as this was Gentile territory, which is why, by the way, they had a large herd of swine. The Jews would have had nothing to do with unclean pigs. But you see, the gospel was going to go out unto the Gentiles, and Jesus shows this very thing, not only by going to them initially here in this passage, being there in their country, but also by then sending them a witness, this demon-possessed man, or formerly possessed man. This man would be a light in a dark place. He would be the missionary to the Gadarenes, yet he himself was a Gadarene. And this shows, I think, that missions begins at home. It's why we have home missions in the OPC. It's why you even can be a missionary, even though you don't travel to a foreign land to preach the gospel, even though you're not necessarily ordained as an officer in the church to do so. See, the other disciples, they had and bore an office that Jesus gave to them. They followed him wherever he went. This man had no office. He had no special position. He was just an ordinary man whose life was once ruled by sin and Satan, but then was told to go and share with the people of his own hometown what God had done for him. That's what God calls us all to do. To share what God has done for us by speaking the good news of the gospel. Some people are meant to have special training and be sent to foreign lands or to be ordained as officers in the church. But some are meant to simply stay home and tell everyone they know what Jesus has done for them. And no matter which one you are, you have been commissioned to proclaim the good news. So that Satan and his demons will be banished from the hearts and lives of God's people as they are renewed in the image of God. That God, in the conversion of his people, would be glorified. To him be all praise and glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we are thankful for uh, the gospel seen so clearly in this passage. And we were thankful that Christ, being divine, yet taking on human nature, was able to uh, accomplish the wonderful salvation that we have come to experience through the work of your spirit. And Lord, we uh, pray that we would walk in the light as you are in the light. We pray that by your spirit, we would be empowered to cast off the darkness for we cannot do it on our own. And we pray, Lord, that you would be active in our lives by the Spirit, making us ready always to share the good news with our friends, whether it be our neighbors near our home, whether it be those in our places of employment, those whom we see daily or weekly. 
Lord, may we be ready to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.